last uh, number of weeks, uh, there have been a couple of scholars that I've been looking to, just you know, learning from related to the things that we're uh, discussing together on Sunday mornings. Uh, one's a, a pastor, author named Timothy Keller. The other is uh, uh, Dr. Daniel Block. Um, he writes a commentary on the book of Deuteronomy. And he, he titles the book of Deuteronomy, he calls it The Gospel According to Moses. That's kind of a strange title if you think about it. Um, but what he's doing there is, is he's paralleling the gospel, uh, or he's paralleling the book of Deuteronomy with uh, the New Testament gospels. We're, we're moving toward the, we're coming to the close this Sunday of this series that we've been in, Promises and Other Crazy Things That We Say. And we've been looking at God as a promise making, promise keeping God. And what it means to be those who are invited into covenant relationship with him. And by looking at the first people of God, we've been desiring to learn and grow what it means for us to be the new people of God as we would continue this journey together. And so uh, Daniel Block parallels Deuteronomy, the gospel according to Moses, with say the gospel according to Matthew. Mark, where, where Matthew and Mark write of their experience of Jesus as they encountered him in the first century, and how they had come to recognize him as the hope of Israel, the Messiah, who had been, had been promised, had been foretold, and that he is the hope, he is the good news, good news, God, the word gospel means good news, for humanity. Um, he's paralleling the book of Deuteronomy, the gospel according to Moses, with the gospel according to Luke. So Luke was, Dr. Luke was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, never met Jesus face to face uh, in the flesh, um, but he says in Luke chapter 1 that he investigated everything, everything carefully in order that he might bring a faithful report to us. And, and in his investigations, he too found the, that via the testimony of those he interviewed and then via his, his own experience that indeed this one who had come among us was God incarnate. He was come, uh, God come to, to mingle among us, to teach us and ultimately to give his life in our place. Um, so the gospel according to Moses, paralleling it then to the gospel according to John, John being the, like the best friend of Jesus, you know, among the, the three who were closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John, um, whom John, John comes to realize is the word made flesh, is how he opens his gospel, um, that this one whom he counted as personal friend was indeed God come among us, um, and taking on flesh, taking on human form. So this morning we're going to inquire into this kind of curious title that Daniel Block gives to the book of Deuteronomy, as, because I think it's going to be helpful at least to bring this little series to a close. And, and to do this, we're going to kind of do a bit of a survey of several chapters in Deuteronomy, kind of 9, 10, we're going to dip into 11, but we're going to do so via Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're going to kind of hang our hat there. Um, maybe just other, one other word of introduction would be to say that in about 20 minutes or so, I'll, I'd be glad to receive your questions. Uh, maybe you've read this text in advance and you've got some questions, or as we're going along this morning, something comes to mind and you wonder about. Um, you can just text it to the number on the screen, or I message it to the number on the screen, and I'll do my best in a minute or a minute and a half or so to try to interact with your questions and bring something that's uh, hopefully you know, helpful and scratches uh, where you itch. Beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 4, uh, Moses begins repeating a word, um, and we're going to encounter it here in Deuteronomy 8, um, and, and we begin to see in the repetition of this word that there is a key to understanding what it means to live successfully as the children of God in the, the land of his promise, in the place of his promise and his provision. And the word that Moses has been repeating and is going to continue to repeat in the, the book is the word remember. Remember. Uh, so I'm going to read this for us this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 8, and then we're going to dig into that word um, a little bit more. Um, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. It will be on the screen, uh, but you're welcome to look it up in your own uh, the scriptures uh, as well. Let's stand together as, uh, as I read this for us, and we'll attend to it starting in verse 1. Um, this is the word of the Lord. Be careful to obey all the commands I am giving you today. Then you will live and multiply, and you will enter and occupy the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors. Remember 
how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. For all these 40 years, your clothes didn't wear out and your feet didn't blister or swell. Think about it. Just as a parent disciplines a child, the Lord your God disciplines you for your own good. So, obey the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land of flowing streams and pools of water with fountains and springs that gush out in the valleys and hills. It is a land of wheat and barley, of grapevines, fig trees, and pomegranates, of olive oil and honey. It is a land where food is plentiful and nothing is lacking. It is a land where iron is as common as stone and copper is abundant in the hills. When you have eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. But that is the time to be careful. Be aware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands, regulations, and decrees that I am giving you today. For when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, and when your flocks and herds have become very large and your silver and gold has multiplied along with everything else, be careful. Do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Do not forget that he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions, where it was so hot and dry. He gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness, a food unknown to your ancestors. He did this to humble you and test you for your own good. He did all this so you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you the power to be successful in order to fulfill the covenant he confirmed to your ancestors with an oath. But I assure you of this, if you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods, worshiping and bowing down to them, you will certainly be destroyed. Just as the Lord has rescued, has destroyed other nations in your power, you also will be destroyed if you refuse to obey the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. May he help us understand it and apply it in our lives this morning. You may be seated. I have a little trouble remembering things sometimes. I don't know if any of you can relate to this. Um, I, thank you, because one of the things I came to realize was it wasn't the product of my advanced years. Um, it wasn't the product of age. I realized kind of quite young that, man, the, the, the place that would show up most annoyingly was, was in trying to remember people's names. You know, I'd meet someone new, and then the worst part was I really value someone's name. Like, I, I want to remember that conversation. I want to remember the context. I want to have the handle, the name, to kind of hitch the context, the conversation to. And yet, you know, so one of the things that I, 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 there were a couple people that I got to know who were really, really good at remembering people's names, like they were astounding at it. And so I tried to pick up a few tips from them, a few sort of, you know, strategies for remembering names better. So, so one of them was to, you know, use a little sort of memory hook connection with the name, you know, so maybe their name reminds you of someone, or their name is the same as someone that you know really well by that same name, and so you kind of connect the two people like that. Or, or, or maybe it's, you know, connecting their name in your memory with like a rhyme or, a, you know, something like that. Don't say it out loud, okay? They might not like that. Um, you know, Terry, Terry, quite contrary, you know, garden road. Um, uh, so, so you got to try to come up with some strategies. I mean, another one is just to repeat the person's name multiple times within that first encounter, you know? Hi, nice to meet you, Sue. Sue, my name's Terry, glad to meet you. Yeah, so Sue, where did you from? You know, like you can find a way to kind of, you know, use their name two, three, four times, and in, in that way, try to ingrain it in the gray matter so that you, you can remember it a little better. Um, some of you are really nervous because you're like, if he's done all this work and he's still a, as bad at remembering names as he is, I'm sorry if you've been on the receiving end of that. Um, uh, what hope is there? Um, uh, 
In Jesus, there's always hope. Um, so so I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to having a better memory, and I'm keeping working on it. Um, I mean, another one is to, you know, after you've met someone, is to kind of envision their face and, you know, kind of repeat in your mind the, their name, attaching their name to the face. Saying things out loud can be helpful, too, uh, in, in trying to remember it. I've wondered if it's just that I'm distractible. You know, there's just, like, a bunch of things that I'm thinking about and trying to keep going. Or maybe it's a, a creative, just, you know, little bent there where, you know, there's always, you're always creating something. There's always wheels spinning in the back of your mind. We can, we can add some structure to try to help bring uh, some discipline into an area where, where there's a weakness. Um, over and again, Moses pleads with his congregation, the, uh, the children of Israel on the plains of Moab, and he pleads with them to remember. And there are some fundamental pieces that are essential for them to hang on to in order for them to live successfully as God's children in the, the land of God's provision, in the place of God's provision in the place of God's blessing. And so this morning we're going to look at that. Remember and never forget. And he implores them in kind of three ways. Remember your bondage. Uh, remember how God led you, secondarily. This is in your bulletin if you uh, want to pull out your notes. Um, thirdly, remember your calling. And this morning what I want to do is invite you to remember preeminently that. Uh, that God, through Jesus, has saved you with a purpose. Um, that this is part of our calling. And if we will listen to these exhortations from Moses, we're going to find ourselves living increasingly secure in that calling, increasingly successful in that calling, increasingly prosperous in that place. Whereas we've been looking over the past weeks, he longs to bring his, his, his blessing. He longs to be a, give you place, give you possession, give you prosperity, uh, to, to give you peace in this land that he's called you to. Now, there are several things about Moses' instructions which seem, well, but to me, for quite frankly, they seem counterintuitive. Um, and the first one is this, remember your bondage. I mean, why would we ever want to do that? Why would we ever want to look back at the era of life which preceded Jesus? Why would we ever want to look back at, in this case, Pharaoh and, and the horrors of slavery in Egypt? And, and so maybe important to underscore would be here uh, that he's not actually asking them to remember the horrors uh, of their slavery. He's asking them, calling them, to remember the fact of their slavery. Remember what you once were. You once were slaves, but now you are free. He said, starts speaking in this kind of language back in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15, where he says, Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out with amazing power and mighty deeds. Chapter 8, verse 14, Do not forget the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. This refrain is going to be something that Moses is going to repeat in these series of sermons in, in the book that we now call the book of Deuteronomy. And it's going to be a refrain uh, that gets picked up kind of through the history of Israel, the prophets will pick up this idea of not forgetting, not, not getting above your raising. Remember where you have come from. It is this plea. If we had time to kind of jump into chapter 11 uh, this morning, we would hear Moses saying a little bit more. He would say, remember that it was not your children who experienced that deliverance, rather it was you yourselves. Okay, so in other words, you have first-hand experience of God's deliverance out of slavery. You were there. You saw it with your own eyes. You, you experienced this. So there were children at the time. But he's saying, look, you were present and you, you saw how God humbled Pharaoh and all of Egypt with him. With him. You, you saw God's power in bringing deliverance initially for you. Never forget this. Don't allow yourself to slip into a laissez-faire kind of thinking and in that place begin to imagine that God is less than you saw him to be that day. You're remembering. Don't forget who you once were, lest you begin thinking what you have become is of your own making, is of your own doing. He invites us to remember and maybe I, I can offer another little memory aid. So if, if, there's, if there's something to this idea that, that there's structure 
uh, is, is helpful in forming good memory, good remembering. Then, then let, me, let me try this, hopefully for your benefit. Uh, but that is to use one of the most powerful memory tools known to humanity, song, to, well, maybe instill point number one from a sermon on this Sunday um, into your memory. Let's see if this is helpful. Oh, 
chains are gone. Imagine what your life would be. Jesus had not set you free. Remember your chains and remember your chains are gone. You gotta remember your chains and remember your chains are calls us to seems equally counterintuitive to me. Not only remember your chains, but remember how God led you. Now, now here's what I find counterintuitive about this. God found them and delivered them from bondage in Egypt and then led them into the wilderness. Well, there's something about that that seems counterintuitive to me. Like, couldn't we just kind of take a jet straight over to the promised land? Wouldn't that be the preferred way of, of getting from here to there? Now, the text tells us, of course, that he led them through the wilderness. But we've got to make sure that we catch the fact that he led them to the wilderness. It wasn't like he found them in the wilderness and said, Oh, gee, look there, I'm sorry you're in such a bad straits. Let me, let me help you get out of it. He led them there and then led them through. And the problem is the wilderness is a place of death. It's a place, it's a place of destruction. It's a place where you can't survive. Moses writes, Don't, Do not forget that he led you through the great and terrible wilderness with poisonous snakes and scorpions where it was hot, so hot and dry. This was a place of death unless God was going to show up miraculously in the midst of that place of death, which of course he does. He goes on, he says, He gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness, a food unknown to your ancestors. It seems like an awful lot of trouble to me. Like, like, couldn't he have done something different? He did this to humble you and test you for your own good. We'll come back to that last sentence in just a minute. Your only hope in the wilderness was miracles. That God would give them water from the rock. That God would give them food from, from the sky. Otherwise, it was going to be no food, no water, therefore no life. Why does God lead us into seasons of wilderness? Uh, can't we just kind of jump from the bondage that we were once in into the place of his promise and his provision? Wouldn't that just be simpler? Beam me up, Jesus. Right? And the answer actually is found in the accounts of what took place. If we had a chance to go back and read through Exodus chapter 4, or read through Numbers chapter 14, what we find out is that the Israelites weren't very long on the desert side of the Red Sea before they'd run out of water. And then in that place of poverty, they began to complain, initially against God, and then they brought their petitions to Moses and began to lobby Moses, saying, look, you've got to take us back to Egypt. Did you just bring us out here to die? You know, what is this? And we, we see in that articulation evidence that though they had been delivered out of slavery, slavery had not been delivered out of them. They, they were out of Egypt, but they were still thinking like slaves. Who's going to take care of me? Well, I need to go back to the things that I used to know because there's comfort in that. It, it wasn't good, but it was better than dying out here. This is the purpose of the wilderness. It, it didn't happen just by chance. It was in the wilderness that God was going to meet them and begin to teach them to walk as free people. To walk as those who were dependent upon God, who would look to Him for His provision, that they would begin to think in new ways and live with new attitudes, freed from the bondage of sin, though not no longer living, as though they were slaves. When God found you, you were a slave to sin. Some of us were more aware of that than others of us. Many of, many of us saw it clearly, that 
that to which we were enslaved was killing us. Uh, I mean, it's true whether we saw it or not, but, but some of us saw it clearly. In the desert, you do find some wells. And sometimes there is some groundwater that, that is present and will kind of help you get by. And, and before Jesus, many of us looked to things that provided kind of the limp along necessity. We, we, we looked to a job, to career, to find, you know, a measure of fulfillment, a measure, measure of satisfaction, a measure of what we're looking for in that. We could look to, to our spouse, we could look to our, our family, to our children, we could, we could look to these good things that God has generally made available to us, but eventually you realize that even your best achievements and acknowledgments the, the, the wells aren't deep enough to actually satisfy the deepest needs that are present, the deepest thirsts that are ours in the midst of the wilderness experience that really is all of this side of heaven. And then we come to the creek beds, and they seem innocuous enough until the rains come. And then all of a sudden they're surging with water, and the very things that we thought were present were, 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 were helping us survive actually become destructive to us. And we, we see the destruction, we see that our, our health is fragile and, and, and illness comes. We see that our, the finances that we've placed our trust and confidence in aren't actually as trustworthy as we thought they were. And, and destruction comes and destroys what we were putting our weight and our trust and our hope and our confidence in. And, and, and what comes then is, 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 the, is, is a, the risk of a disillusionment. And in the wilderness you will discover that it will either break you or it will make you. And the difference is going to be, to whom will you look? Will you look back to Egypt and the old ways and the old systems, or will you look forward to God? Let me see if I can illustrate this in a really practical way. Some, some of you here, not, not many, many of us, um, but some of you were raised in a highly critical home. Uh, parents or a parent who was just completely unpleasable. Uh, they never could, they were antagonistic, they were alienated, they were hostile, um, and, and try as you might, you, you, you never really could satisfy them. And typically what happens for, for children who are raised in an environment like that is there are some classic distortions of life that result. And we become we become overachievers because we're going to measure up in some way. You know, we're going to show, we're going to accomplish. So we overwork, uh, we overcompensate, um, uh, maybe oversensitive or oversensitive to criticism um, because there are, we're being threatened in that criticism. Um, maybe it's afraid of commitment. There's some classic ways, classic results of effects of having been raised in a highly critical environment. And when you heard the gospel, um, it, it provided relief from from that, one of the ways that we'll talk about the gospel is, is that it's sheer grace. You can do nothing to earn what God has for you in Christ. He comes to you by grace and invites you to receive the gift of salvation. And, and then you hear the word, the Father now sees you through Christ. He doesn't see your merit, he sees Christ's merit. And as he looks at you through Christ, he says, you are my beloved child, and in you I am well pleased. And if you grew up in that critical kind of environment, you're like, oh, finally, someone gives me the affirmation that I need. This is beautiful. And the gospel is, is sheer grace is, is warming to your heart. I've been given a new status. I'm no longer a slave. I've now been given a freedom. So, do you think your problems are all, all over at that point? Okay? Not by a long shot, because the problem is that old stuff is so deeply ingrained in us, it's not immediately removed. I mean, when problems come, when you, you still find yourself struggling to make commitments, or, or, or you discover that you're, you're drawing your sense of value from the, the work that you do, the accomplishments that you accomplish, the achievements that are, that are there, you're... You're going to find out that the problems that you have are much worse than you ever thought they were, but they don't actually get exposed until you're in the wilderness. I say, I'm a Christian now. God affirms me. And yet there's really only a part of my life that I've placed on him, that I've placed on the rock. 
And what the wilderness does is it exposes that actually there's a bunch of my life that is still on the sand. And when the storms of life come, that's the stuff that gets threatened. That's the stuff that gets eroded. And, and understandably, we were shattered. Understandably, we, we were shaken to our foundation. What do we do? You need to allow the shock to set in of how much of your life hasn't been actually placed on the rock. How much of your, your joy is actually coming from other places and other things? How much of your hope is coming from other places and other things? How much of your sense of self-regard isn't actually anchored in who Christ says you are and what he's done for you? It's actually based on something else. Your, your hope isn't in what Jesus has done, who God is, the promise of, of eternity that is there, the new heaven, the new earth that we're looking forward to. It's, based, it's, it's, being, it's being founded on, it's being set on something else. Now you're starting to see. You're starting to see what has been there all along, but you didn't realize it. You didn't know it. And, and so what do you do? Well, you, you, you pray a little more. You know, and you, you maybe turn to Scripture a little more. You know, and you turn to friends, the other followers of Jesus, and receive their counsel, and receive their coaching, and receive their encouragement, and invite them to pray for you in the midst of the difficulty that you're going through. And maybe you serve, and, and maybe even in your serving, you get the opportunity to help someone else. It's like, I'm in the middle of the wilderness, and yet I still, God still uses me, and it's these extraordinary things. But where, before Christ, these these. There were these little wells that you would draw on, these little fistures of water that you would seek out. Now in Christ, you're not alone just drawing on insufficiency. You're actually in Christ, and he is with you in the wilderness, giving you coaching, giving you counsel. This is wilderness survival training that's, that's designed to steer you away from where you once were and take you toward who you now are and who you are now serving. Joy in Christ is only based on what he has done. And to the degree that my life is actually resting on other places for the, the, the security uh, that I look to, uh, the, uh, the, the sense of, of personal accomplishment that would be mine. Uh, these, what the scriptures describe actually as being idols, places and things that I look to which are not God himself. The wilderness begins to expose the, the presence of these in our lives. Joy of Jesus has been described, Tim Keller describes it as, as being like a furnace with a thermostat. The colder it gets outside, uh, the more it kicks in on the inside, and the hotter our, our pursuit of Jesus needs to become. So you pray, you, you, you pray more, you read your Bible more, you, you talk with other people more, you maybe serve a little bit more. Uh, we, we receive love, we receive counsel, we begin drawing these things in to strengthen us, and we're finding actually that now in the midst of the wilderness, we're beginning, the roots are going deeper, and we're beginning to draw what we actually need to survive the, this experience uh, from these provisions, which are God's provisions to us. And increasingly, my life is being shifted off of the sand it used to be on, and it's being placed on Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm being founded on the rock. I'm maturing. My faith is maturing in Him. God, when He created the world, did not create desert. He created garden. And sin, but sin and evil came and created desert. But someday God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 35 that on that day the deserts will bloom. They will prosper. But once again there will, be, there will be all that God intended in the luscious, beautiful, great provision. But until that time, God uses deserts to make you bloom. Remember your bondage. But also remember how God led you. It says in chapter 8, verse 5, he says, Think about it, just as a parent disciplines a child, the Lord your God disciplines you for your own good. Verse 2, remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would really obey his commands. 
Are you in the wilderness right now? Is this an experience of wilderness? But to some extent, all of this life is wilderness. Everything this, this side of eternity is wilderness. But there are seasons. There are seasons when, when our world is rocked. You can take encouragement and instruction from the fact that Jesus found himself in the wilderness more than once. The first time he was in the wilderness, actually the, the, the coincidence of it is crazy. He, he had been baptized by John the Baptist, and it's that extraordinary experience where the Spirit came upon him, the voice of the Father spoke, this is my Son and my love, with him I am well pleased, listen to him. And then it says the Spirit led him into the wilderness. What? What kind of place is that to go? Isn't that, isn't that crazy? It was in the wilderness, the devil came to him and tempted him. And on one of those temptations, he answered right out of this text, in response, to, in response to the temptation, he said, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. I'm not looking back to Egypt. I'm not going to try to make my own way. I'm not going to command those stones to become bread. I am actually going to look to the one who's brought me here, who's led me here, and who, whose very words are life themselves. Whose very, whose very words and presence is my sustenance. There will be times when you find yourself in a wilderness, and you find yourself hungry in that wilderness, and the question will be, will you look to God, the one who's led you here, or will you look back and try to make your own way, and, and try, to, try to create something that satisfies or satiates the pain or the unknowing, looking to the old ways, the old directions, rather than to the one who has who's rescued you to bondage, and is with you now. He's led you. You're not here by mistake. Did you notice the word test? It says, humbling you and testing you to prove your character in there. Now, now we read that and, and, and might get the wrong impression of it because the world uses tests to eliminate the unworthy. Right? So, you know, if you're in university and you get the final exams, are you worthy? Are you worthy of the piece of paper? Are you going to get the graduation certificate? You know, the diploma? Yeah, you've got to pass that exam if you're going to be worthy. You know, if you're, you know, if a student, a, a young lawyer is approaching the bar looking for that final stamp of, of, of approval, you've got to prove you're worthy. You've got to prove it. You want our love and affirmation? You want all the credentials that come with this? You've got to prove it. You've got to pass the bar exam. That's not the way this word's being used here. This is in the context that Moses is describing the context of the testing of a parent. That's very different. A good parent does not test to exclude. They test to improve. They test to, to refine, to temper. You know, we saw a flaw in the character of our child, and we said, boy, that's going to be disastrous if I let that continue. Well, I'm going to have to apply some pressure, I'm going to have to do some testing here, I'm going to have to add some discipline in order for that character defect, that flaw, to, to, to not become an encumbrance to them. We see, we see a weakness that we recognize could really trip them up down the road, and we love them, so we want to test them, we want them to prove something different. So, so you know, maybe it's just simple as, as just not applying themselves in our homework. Okay, well, there's going to have to be some limitations. You're going to, one of the disciplines may be some, some censoring of how much TV time there is or, or some restricting of some freedoms because you're going to have to apply yourself, your son, daughter, you're going to have to apply yourself here because this is vitally important for your wellness. And so I'm going to, I'm going to bring some structure in place to help you. You discover that they're lying to you or, or they've been lying in, in some context in their life. Some discipline is going to be necessary in order to provide some structure to bring them firstly to a place of repentance, but then to a place where they love to do what's right. I only want the truth. I only want to live in the truth. And so we, perhaps it's a restriction of freedoms. Perhaps it's, it's the pain that's going to be applied in their lives until they're prepared to consistently tell the truth. You discover they're stealing. Wow. You know, there, there, this is a time where some reparation is going to be necessary. There's going to be some structure brought. Man, that is uncomfortable. If you ever had to go back and say, I'm sorry, this is what I did, that, that's super uncomfortable. But I'll tell you, I had to grow character like nothing else. You know, when you have to own up, I did it. That's called confession. I did it, and I'm not going to do it again. That's called repentance. I, I want to be different. God helped me to be different. This is what takes place in the desert. The, 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 the pain is intended to bring me to a place where I'm, I'm willing to make the changes necessary. 
When I began to realize that I was prone to forget, I put some structure in place. I am blessed to live in the age of gizmos and gadgets. So I, one of the structures that I put in place was, you know, good calendaring practices, and they bang and they bong at me, and I write everything down. I write so many things down because I know that I want to remember that, but I might forget it. Dr. Henry Cloud says that um, where discipline fails, add structure. The, the structure to help. Uh, so I, I've been hitting the gym four or five days a week um, since September. Um, I wanted to lose a few pounds, one of my motivations. Uh, another one of my motivations was that um, I had a few aches and pains, and I had a coach say, look, here are some exercises you can do that are gonna help, you know, sort of strengthen you, and I consider that to be a matter of stewardship. I want to steward my body, want to be healthy and well. Um, but I really didn't get the discipline necessary until a certain structure was in place. Um, beginning in September, uh, Christy started taking a bus at 7 a.m. Um, needed to get on the bus, 7.08, the bus pulled out, and so it was my responsibility to get her to the bus. Well, lucky me, the bus leaves from the rec center. So though I hadn't up till this point in time had the discipline to get up at 6 a.m. and hit the gym at 7 and then be ready to go for my day by 8 or 8.30, the structure was applied to my life that is enabling me to meet the goals and do the good things that I've known I needed to do. And I've lost 10 pounds since September. Put a diet change in there and stuff too. But yeah. So, so, but the structure was necessary. The structure was helpful. Now, that's a physical analogy, but what about the spiritual? I mean, if that's important, physical wellness, how much more so is spiritual wellness? What are the structures that you're putting in place in your life to, to help you remember the goodness of God, to help you remember that He is constantly with you, to help you remember what He's brought you out of and that He's with you and what He's carrying you through? What are the structures that you're putting in place? Uh, who are the, the people that are in your life um, who are part of his enabling your remembrance? Uh, what are the places that you go or the places you don't go? The, 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 the places you go that are constructive toward, toward enabling that, that good goal in your life. What, what are the songs that you sing? Because they are, they're just, they're stirring in me a truth that I'm trying to hold on to, that I want to remember. I'm going to pause there uh, and take some questions. If uh, I don't know if uh, you've got some questions, you can text them to me or I message them to me. Um, and it's not too late. Rachel will shout it out to she, She's got my phone back there. I'm going to show her. What do you think this morning, baby? Let me continue. Remember your bondage, Moses said. Uh, remember how. God has led you. And then remember your calling. Uh, there's a purpose phrase that's built into verse 18 or so um, in this passage that Moses has been preaching. Uh, it's indicated by the word so, meaning for this purpose, so that. Let me read it for you, starting at verse 16. He led you with manna in the wilderness, a food unknown to your ancestors. He did this to humble you and test you for your own good. He did all this so that, pardon me, you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you power to be successful in order to fulfill the covenant he confirmed to your ancestors with an oath. And several things going on there. He did this so that you would testify to his grace. I am where I am, not by my own doing, but by his. He is the one who has carried me toward this, this good land, toward this new place, that this new work that he's doing in my life. It's grace, it's his provision, and it's his provision and his calling to his covenant. His covenant relationship, the first and the second covenants, are both about God's invitation to humanity. Both people of God, the, the, the first people of God and the new people of God, we are to be about this invitation to the nations to come and be restored to Father God. We, we see it in, in the Old Covenant, Isaiah 51. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation, Israel. The law will go up from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. 
He says a little later, chapter 60, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. This is, this is purpose stuff. This is why is really existed. They existed to, to ultimately bring the Messiah. They existed to be a light to the nations, to, to beckon them to come back, to be restored to the Father. And this is the, this is the calling of the church. This is our calling, a light to the nations. Come and see that the one who has rescued me out of the brokenness of my life is carrying me through the wilderness of this life and the wilderness says that I find in this life. And my calling is actually found in the sharing of this good news, this hope. Jesus was the word become flesh. And his coming, his coming, his advent among us, what was announced as joy to our world. We're going to jump into that theme next week. We're unwrapping joy this Christmas. So what's the difference? What's the difference between the person who blooms in the wilderness and those who wilt? What's the difference? What can I do to possibly position myself to make it through the wilderness? To thrive in the midst of the harshnesses that are this life. I mean, so much of this human experience comes as the experience of loss, the experience of the griefs, the little griefs, and the, and the large, the greater griefs. Moses would say, remember. Remember the Lord your God. He has given himself to you. He's your God. This is part of what it means to be, uh, to be a covenant making and a covenant-keeping God. It's what it means to be the covenant people of God. It means that he's given himself to us. It's how he affected the deliverance from bondage. It's how he's carrying us through the wilderness. And it's how and why he is, is, is issuing his invitation via our calling. And maybe it's helpful in particular to point this out. Remember that he has gone through the wilderness ahead of you. Uh, we see the wilderness that I referenced earlier um, where he was tempted by the devil. But Jesus endured the ultimate wilderness, the ultimate thirst, the ultimate isolation when he went to the cross for you and for me. In Hebrews we're told that he was tempted in every way, just like us. So if you've been tempted, if you've been betrayed, if, if you've been teased, if you've been mocked, if you've been ridiculed, so is he. Uh, if, you've, if you're experiencing the erosion, maybe the death of your body, so is he. But if Jesus is only an example to us, if you see his suffering in the wilderness only as an example, it's of no comfort at all. He's just a standard that, that you and I can never live up to. But if you see him in the wilderness, Having gone there in your place, that makes all the difference in the world. He's gone to the wilderness for you. He's gone to the cross for you. He's the only child of God who went into the howling wilderness in order to take on the sin that is yours and mine. And in the doing of that, the Father turned his back on him, could no longer look at the Son. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, God made him with no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There was a trade that went on there. He became sin for us. He knew no sin in order that we would get righteousness, in order that we would be rightly restored to God, in order that we would be in right relationship with, with God. The Father had to turn away. But in so doing, Jesus took the hit that you and I deserved. And now he can journey with us. A, he can affect our deliverance. B, he can journey with us through the wildernesses, whatever they are, in our lives. Because he has taken the penalty for us. And we no longer have to encounter the wilderness alone. This is how you will know to trust him, even in the most desolate of circumstances. <coughs> if, are you being betrayed? Or, uh, if you felt the, the, the losing, the loss of your health? Has your financial stability been, been shattered? I, I don't know the reason for it. I don't know for sure what God is doing 
in the midst of this with you. But I know for sure what it is not. It is not, it is not because he doesn't love you. It is not because he doesn't care for you. And I know that for sure because he demonstrated his love for you and he demonstrated his care for you by going into the howling wilderness for you. Well, we don't know why he's letting these difficulties, these pains come into our lives. What is the purpose of that will be? But we know for sure that in the midst of it, he is continuing to demonstrate his love for us. He's continuing to demonstrate his care for you. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what Moses was trying to help the children of Israel recognize. This is the gospel according to Moses. And it aligns with the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So this morning I want to invite you to remember. Remember and never forget. When you need to cast yourself back to what your life might have been. To the place that you were when he first found you. In order to, to be able to take encouragement from, I'm not where I once was. Thank you, Jesus. I'm not where I need to be yet. But by his strength and help, I will be. I will be. And someday I'm going to see him face to face. I want to invite the worship team to come and lead us in response. Maybe you can stand with me. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you went into the howling wilderness on our behalf. Thank you that you endured the, the shame of the cross. You were willing to take upon yourself your, <clears throat> our sin in place for your perfect righteousness. And you, in your great love and mercy, you long that we would bloom in the midst of this wilderness. And in so doing, the world would see, that those around us would see, they would, they would be curious, they would want to know, where, where are you getting water from in this desolate place? Show them, show them, it's Jesus, he's in me. And Lord, we look forward to the day when you will cause all things to, to bloom for your glory, when this wilderness will become a, a garden of plenty. And you will make all things new and, and the desert will become this garden which will be this, this, this spectacle of the greatness that is you, the radiant beauty that is yours. Until that day, lead us, O gracious and loving Father. Holy Spirit, be our constant companion, our comforter, our guide. And equip us for faithfulness. Before you we ask in your name, Lord Jesus.